The Fringe, only on Late Nights on K-Talk. Now, my next guest has gone from addict to author, drug junkie to self-confessed word junkie. Cape Town's Desiree Ann Martin's story is one of addiction, identity crises, depression and ultimately recovery. Her debut book, a memoir entitled We Don't Talk About It Ever, is being launched at the Book Lounge tonight. And she joins us in studio this morning to talk about her incredible life, her personal recovery from heroin addiction and the very difficult process of writing it all down. Desiree, welcome. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Jane. It is such a pleasure. I'm so excited. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. How are you feeling? Uh, There's only a few hours to go <laughs> for the big launch. A little bit nauseated, but overwhelmed, but excited. But it's it's just like bringing uh, another child into this world. Mm. I don't know if you can relate to that. 100%. <laughs> yeah. It's a difficult labor. Yeah, yeah. So the last few weeks have been like the last trimester, and I've just been waiting the big day which is to which is a bit later and um, I'm just so overwhelmed and excited how long have you wanted this to be a reality um, I have wanted a book to be published since I was 10 years old mm. since I started writing I would imagine in earnest uh, secret diaries mm. and um, notes in class and um, but I, one of my literary heroines growing up was uh, Judy Bloom. Mm. And I loved Judy Bloom books. And so I actually wrote a novel when I was 10 and I had pneumonia for two weeks. And uh, so that was my first novel. It was an attempt at a Judy Bloom-esque type, <laughs> type um, novel. Um, so this has been a dream of mine for the last, uh, yeah, three decades. So, and I also wanted to write from, from as early as I could remember, mm. I, I felt like I was going to write a book. But, I mean, you couldn't, half of the shit that had happened to you that hadn't happened at the age of 10. No, so what no. book did you think you were going to write? <laughs> I just thought I was going to, you know, write my observations, my, my fickle <laughs> observations and my one-dimensional. As a 10-year-old. Yeah. you know. I had a life. It, and, and the life I had when I was 10 was actually quite fraught with difficulty. So um, I could have written something, but uh, but I waited and then more more stuff happened, <laughs> so I've got way more content now. Um, and it was obviously the right time now. You know? What do you think 10-year-old Des would have said about this book? She wouldn't be allowed to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a 10-year-old, and she wants to come to the launch, and she wants to read the book, and I've had to say to her, uh, we're going to have to have a long conversation before you're allowed to read this book. Okay. Is that because, I mean, she, you know, and we'll speak about this more in detail in just a moment, but you are a recovering addict. You, you mm-hmm. used to be a heroin user. Does she know that about mom? She does know that about me. She knows that I had a problem with alcohol and a problem with drugs, and she understands my um, sober milestones, and we call it my clean birthdays. So she's understood that for quite a while. How, what is uh, your... When are, how old are you currently? I'm 14. I just turned 14 last oh, year. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Congratulations. So I'm way into my adolescence now. Mm. I'm a raging rebellious teenager in yeah, recovery. I'm, I'm heading there. Yeah, I'm, I'm also <laughs> heading there. Um, so, so who was 10-year-old Des? Just paint a picture for us. Let, let's start there. Um, 10-year-old Des. She was hypervigilant, very curious, very active, very overactive, uh, very, I read all the time, 
all the time. Um, I was like reading the back of, you know, those uh, toilet sprays in the bathroom. I used used to read the back of the cornflakes packet. Exactly. I would read whenever I could. Um, I want to stop you on just for a moment on that. Looking back now at the fact that you were reading the back of a, a toilet, toilet, spray, bottle, can, toilet yeah. spray bottle, do, do, do you think anything about that as to what was happening that you felt the need to... Mm, that's a very interesting question. I think that I just I just needed to consume words. You mm. know, it's like the, it's they fed me an and escapism it, uh, at all. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. I was devouring any kind of literature from from the time, and I could read from the time I was four years old. So I was. Oh, story! I'm not, I keep interrupting you. Yes, we probably okay. should have had. We probably should have gone for a coffee first, <laughs> so I could have done this, and then I could have done a, a sensible interview. But that's so funny because my mom says I don't think it was this, but my mom claims that I could read at the age of two. I'm. I strongly suspect wow. that that's not true. <laughs> I think maybe. I maybe four. Yeah. Um. But I remember. Yeah. yeah at yeah. the age of four, yeah. devouring. Absolutely, yeah. And it was escapism from, um, a painful reality of, of my domestic life. And, um, but it was an absolute necessity. I don't think that I could have survived without books, Hmm. you know, and that is as much true for my childhood as it was for my adolescence as it is for my adulthood, Mm, you know, mm. that the words, words are just, they, they just, connect to me um and they connect to characters and they connect to other people's lives um that's why i call myself a word junkie i just inhale the stuff you know whether it's reading or writing talk a little bit about what was going on at home in your young years did you you grew up in cape town i did Mm. yes i did um this is a very expensive accent that i have comes by a, a private school and theatre school. So, um, thanks, Mom. Um, <laughs> um, my childhood was chaotic, to say the least. Um, in all honesty, I was surrounded by every kind of addiction that you could possibly imagine, albeit alcoholism or gambling or codependency or all of it. And... Um, um, in the book as well, I touch on uh, what was suppressed memories of abuse as well, which which later emerged, mm. uh, as they always tend to, mm. at inconvenient times. Um, but that was what my childhood was like. But I was wanting for nothing, absolutely nothing materially. Um, we had a fabulous house and an amazing neighborhood. I had great friends, um, but there was still a hole, you mm. know, and there was still a, a sense of something missing and a sense of being kind of alien in this environment. And also trying to make sense of it because like the title of my book suggests, um, nobody ever spoke about these things. Nobody ever s- spoke honestly about the reality of what was going on. Um, so I had to do a lot of investigation and a lot of kind of uh, detective work to try and figure out the truth or just make assumptions about what the truth was because nobody spoke about it. On the face of it, how would... Uh, if I'd have met you back then as, I don't know, maybe a teacher or a, a, somebody in the community, how would I have described you at first blush? Um, as uh, funny, uh, hyperactive, um, a good girl, because uh, that was a role that I adopted very well, um, because, you know, if you're a good girl, then you stay out of trouble. Um, 
but that kind of changed in my adolescence. But if it met me as a young child, I, I mean, I excelled at everything. And I see you nodding because you probably did exactly the same thing. Mm. Yeah. And, um, just to, to be perfect, to, to be loved, to, to, to be noticed, you know. So you probably would have seen that part of me at that age. If you are just joining us this morning, my guest in studio is uh, author, <laughs> author, that sounds good, doesn't it? it really uh, does. Desiree <laughs> Ann Martin, uh, whose debut book, it's a memoir entitled We Don't Talk About It Ever, is being launched at the Book Lounge tonight. Please do come along if you can make it 5.30 to 6 uh, to hear more of Des's incredible story. Uh, I'm so delighted that uh, that I get to speak to her about this book, and I'm so proud of you. I mean, it's such, <laughs> having gone through the process myself and to have watched you go through it, it's yes. just, it, it's phenomenal. At what point did things start to go awry? Because it's all very well to seek um, sort of oblivion in the back of toilet <laughs> toilet <laughs> bottle, yeah. yeah. But but at some point, mm. other things, more destructive elements. I think in. I think when um, I hit the what they call tweening now, um, and all the hormones started, and um, and the identity crisis started. I think that's when when I started turning to more destructive things such as self-harm and um, later on uh, eating disordered or disordered eating. Um, but, yeah, I think it started mainly in my early adolescence. That's when things started to go horribly wrong for me. That's when I turned in on myself. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that I and, and our stories in some aspects are so similar mm. and in others are, are so different. Mm. You know, I grew up there, you grew up here, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but but one thing that, that people always tend to say about me, which is sort of a compliment, but sort of isn't, is we can't believe you were ever like that. You know, yeah. when I talk about using, when yeah. I talk about spending half my day with my head down the toilet or, you know, slicing my, my wrist yeah. to pieces with, with razor blades. Yeah. Um, and to look at you and, and I, I'm a, <laughs> I'm in, I'm also in recovery, so I know that most of the people that I know have messed up past, you know, yeah. um, and most of the people I know I never saw in their messed yeah, up past. Absolutely. Um, and so as much as I can say I can't imagine you like that, mm. I know you enough to know that it would have been hectic. <laughs> Is that, uh, is that an accurate observation? That, that, that's an acute observation yeah. and an understatement <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that a lot actually because I'm, I'm actually an addictions counselor, mm. um, in private practice. And when I meet clients for the first time, they're always curious to know if, if I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And <laughs> I have to say, I, I'm pretty well versed <laughs> in, in, yeah. in, in what you, what Does you anything come... shock you these days? Oh, yeah. Really? Still. still. There, there are days when I come home from work and I go, well, that's one I haven't heard before. Wow. Yeah. Sure. You know, uh, addicts are creative, man. Yeah, 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 we are. Um, at what point did uh, you, you spoke about the self-harm, the, the disordered eating. At some point you come to drugs mm. well alcohol came first right. um when i was 17 and then very shortly after was the drugs and um i maintained quite well f well i think for quite a while and then um i met uh heroin and that was uh, my undoing for for the last four years of my using do you remember the first time that you used heroin 
I do. I remember it very vividly. Um, Where it, were you? It was in a flat in Cliff Street, my flat that I shared with my partner at the time. And it was my 24th birthday. And as present, he um, gave me crack. And then I climbed the walls. And then he decided it would be a good idea to give me heroin. And I was violently ill, but I persisted. Um, <laughs> I'm always fascinated. I'm always fascinated by that. And, and heroin, thank God, was never a drug that I used. I'm fairly sure I'd be dead right now. Yeah. But I've got a lot of friends who are recovering addicts, and they say that that first time they used, they were violently ill. I was violently ill, but I was like, but the feeling itself was just like the ultimate anesthetic to and the balm on the wounds on every wound that I had felt up until that point so I persisted because it was it, it literally felt like yeah like coming home it was like absolute uh, oblivion yeah we haven't got time this morning to to go through your, go through your whole story mm. and, I, and I hope that tomorrow uh, there'll be more of an opportunity for people to hear m more details yeah. but where did your drug where did your using take you? Oh, it took me to the darkest places. And, um, yeah, I eventually, I suppose the bottom line is, is that, um, I ended up becoming a sex worker, um, to support my habit, um, and, uh, exchanging drugs for sex and, uh, sex for money. And I got arrested, uh, for possession. So I ended up in holding cells. Um, but I think, I mean, those are just the things that happened to me, but what ultimately happened is that I just lost my will to live and I lost my soul. And I lost myself, I lost my job, I lost uh, anyone that was ever important to me. Um, so when I eventually had the opportunity to find recovery and I was still resistant, <laughs> I still didn't think I had a problem. Mm. Um, when I was given the opportunity by, by my mother to, to go to rehab, um, I was an, a 45 kilogram pile of bones, um, with my hair falling out and abscesses and <laughs> collapsed veins and, um, Absolutely no comprehension that I had a problem. Wow. Um, but I had lost everything. Absolutely did you fight everything. when you first got into rehab? Did you, did you fight? Because I fought. No, I was the perfect patient. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, uh, but in, in my mind, I was saying, you know, like, screw you to absolutely everything. Yeah. And yeah, which, which ultimately ended up in, um, in me relapsing after a couple of weeks in rehab because, um, because I was doing everything perfectly on the surface, but I hadn't truly committed. Mm. And then, um, and that's in the book too. Uh, it's my last convincer. And yeah, you know what they say. It's like when you, when you pick up after a long period of abstinence, or even a short period of abstinence, you don't p start over again. You pick up where you left off. Mm. And it's like, it was, yeah, it was traumatic and terrifying. And that kind of made me go, okay, yeah, you've got a problem here. Mm. Yeah. The book also touches on themes of identity mm. and you mentioned that. Can you just talk a little bit about that? What were your, why was it an issue for you? I think it was an issue for me because, um, I grew up, um, <laughs> and this is just hard to say. It's just, um, in kind of a racist, 
uh, apartheid South Africa and where it was supposedly um, better to be white. And so the aspiration was is that that I wanted to be like that, that I needed to be like that because that was better because the white people were afforded privileges and white people got to go to certain beaches and white people got to go to certain ice cream shops and and I couldn't understand it and and white people got to to sit in certain parts of the train um and I didn't understand why but somehow it was ingrained in me that it was better to do that so I felt everything about me was was very wrong, mm. you know, from my hair, which was a contentious issue, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> to to the to the color of my skin. Yeah, and um, my 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 parents bless them. I mean, they sent me to a private school. Um, during the state of emergency because of the instability at the public, at the government schools and um while it was an amazing opportunity it just spun me out completely because i had um more people to compare myself to like i wasn't white enough i wasn't rich enough i wasn't pretty enough i wasn't smart enough i wasn't anything i just wasn't enough so that's when my identity crisis started uh, pretty much then when I was 10 years old, when I just wanted to be anything other than what I was. And everything around me was was basically uh, echoing that sentiment to say that you're not enough mm. the way that you are. Mm. Um, yeah. If you're just joining us this morning, uh, just to let you know that we're in studio with Desiree Ann Martin, uh, who is releasing her memoir. It's called We Don't Talk About It Ever. Uh, the launch is being held tonight at the Book Lounge in town. Uh, so please do come along if you can. Uh, half past five to six o'clock. And uh, you'll be hearing uh, Desiree talking to her publisher and mine, the one and only uh, Melinda Ferguson. <laughs> Who else would publish such a novel, such a such a memoir? Um, I want to talk about uh, the writing process mm. in just a minute, but um, and, and we're doing this in such a condensed condensed fashion, and I'm sort of it, it's frustrating, but I'm I'm hope I'm sure we're getting the the, the main gist of the book across. Mm. Um, at what point one can be in recovery from from drugs and alcohol, uh, perhaps even eating disorders and, and self harm, um, in terms of not doing those mm. behaviours anymore. Mm. But in terms of a personal and spiritual recovery, because mm. I don't know, for me, when I when I got clean from all of those things, that was great, and I, and it was wonderful to just take one day at a time being clean and sober. Mm. Uh, but there was still a lot of stuff like that being clean and sober didn't actually help me with my identity mm. issues mm. Uh, that still loomed mm. very large mm. was it the same for you I think coming into recovery I mean obviously was fantastic because I got abstinent from all mood and mind altering substances and um, I learned um, to manage my relationship with food and I learned like that it's not okay to hurt myself but it took quite a few years for me to actually get into a relationship with myself um, and to start to understand and I think it was um, was when I started working on my codependency stuff that's really when when the, the, the hard the work starts yeah. where the hard work started yeah. and but it was also where where the most um, remarkable change took place and that was probably uh, six years into my recovery but before that um 
I was, I was, I was also just, you know, I was, I was just so grateful not to be living the life that, that I had had before. And I was just doing what I was told. And I was so happy with being clean and sober. And I got called Captain Recovery, not necessarily <laughs> not in necessarily a flattering, compliment. flattering yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, but, um, but it, it took a, a good few years and a, a lot of bad choices in recovery, um, which is also in the book that, Recovery does not equal like good judgment. <laughs> Almost certainly the opposite. <laughs> you know actually. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, and re- recovery does not necessarily equal an easy life. You know, that there's, there's a lot of pain and life does go on and life in life's terms does happen. And it's just uh, learning new ways to deal with it, you know. Was writing a part of your recovery? Absolutely. Um, writing has been so cathartic. Um, and, such an essential part uh, from journaling and rehab all the, and all the way through um, to just writing for myself and doing writing workshops and um, yeah and just finding my truth and finding my voice mm. even you know it's like once again the book is about things we don't speak about and and a few years ago I just decided you know what, I'm going to start speaking about these things and started a blog and um, started putting things out there and spoke with what I believe such truth and authenticity and people just absolutely resonated with it, you know, and I was like, okay, so there is something to this, you Mm -hmm. know, to speaking your truth. Um, And, uh, yeah, the response I got was just... (laughs) out of this world and so it just spurred me on to to write more and I was initially writing for myself and then then I got this crazy idea from this woman called Melinda Ferguson um, that perhaps I should consider writing a book and uh, you know having it published Mm. and I was like oh you mean like put the truth out there for everyone to see and to read and to absorb and to know and to become that vulnerable but that that's the process that that I've had to like go through is to to say that if you're going to tell the truth just tell the truth is there anything that didn't make it into the book um because you were worried about yes there is No. <laughs> are you no, are Sarah you, Jane? <laughs> are you concerned with with not how people, not you know, the likes of me, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. would take it, but but family because that's the that's the big thing. Yeah. Uh, that was that stopped me from being able to write for for a while. That was my sort of writer's block, and it wasn't mm. it wasn't really writer's block. I knew what I wanted to say, mm. but I was scared to say it, and it's only when. I kind of got over that and Melinda said to me, you know, write us if these people That's are dead it. and I did. Um, and then you realise that when it goes to publishing, it's they're very much alive still. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, but you also, for me, I also, I think the minute the minute I held that book in my hand mm. and I knew that this was something that I'd accomplished mm. and it contained my absolute truth and my authentic self, yeah. I didn't give a shit what any of them said. Yeah. And yeah. they, you know, and I, and I got a lot of stick. Are you worried about what's in there? Um, I've had to have conversation with, with, for example, I had a conversation with my dad and I said, uh, I suggest that you don't read the book. Um, and he asked why. So I said, well, there's some, it's no reflection on our relationship now, but like that is my truth and my perspective. And also, um, 
there are some things that I don't want you to read because I don't want you to get hurt. Mm. And he uh, took a day to think about it because he's very proud of, of me having published of course, the book. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then came back and said, no, he thinks he'd rather not read it. Yeah. Was that painful? It, it was kind of semi-painful and, and semi-relieving <laughs> um, because uh, nobody wants their father to read about how, you know, they were a sex worker, especially if they they had no, no knowledge of that before. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, if he's listening now, you know. Yeah. We should have done a trigger warning. <laughs> Turn off, Desiree's dad. Uh, listen, we, we're going to have to end it there. It's It's been such a pleasure. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of this book. It's incredible. Um, I hope that everyone is going to be able to get down to the book launch, book lounge for the launch tonight <laughs> at 5.30 to 6. Just... One final thing. Mm. What? Oh, and I want you to read, but you're going to have to do it really quickly. Um, what do you want people to take out of the book? Hope. Hmm. Absolutely. That that there is always hope. Um, even in my place of work, they know me as the hope merchant because because I just believe that 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 it's possible for anyone, not just to recover, but uh, from addiction, but to recover from any kind of trauma, to recover from any kind of hardship. I just, so uh, essentially, I just want people to derive hope from the book. Hmm. You're going to read for us. Okay. Um, yeah. As the sun rose on my eighth Christmas morning, I maniacally clawed at the gaudy wrapping paper, nearly hyperventilating from excitement. I gasped and spluttered when I saw the contents of the box. I dropped it to the carpeted floor as though it had scalded my little fingers. What the? The doll was all wrong. The doll had black skin. This was not what I had wanted at all. Its skin was black, as black as the frightful night, as black as the mole on Ma Eileen's neck, as black as the ace of spades. Its hair was also black and curled up into a deplorable afro of sorts. This was just all wrong. I had huge trouble reconciling the silicone, silicone tar baby with the idea of I, I had of myself in my head. When I scrunched my eyes closed, I imagined myself a pretty princess with clear white porcelain skin, dimpled cheeks and flowing blonde hair, like Barbie and the girls on TV. There were no girls like me on the censored embargo televisions unless you counted Rudy Huxtable from The Cosby Show, and she was just so sweet and perfect and cute as a button you could choke on. In fact, the Huxtables were the only people of colour on TV. Upper class, one parent a doctor and the other a lawyer, well-behaved kids, and moralistic half-hours to which we stayed glued weekly. The only thing Rudy's parents, Bill and Claire, ever did when she made a dent in their highly principled lives was say, in unison, Oh, Rudy, and roll their eyes and everyone would fall about in fits of canned laughter. Rudy was not like me. Though her hair resembled mine, her life was not like mine at all. Amazing. You're listening to author Desiree Ann Martin reading from her book. It's a memoir. It's called We Don't Talk About It Ever. It launches at the Book Lounge tonight at 5.30 for 6. We'd love to see you all down there. Again, congratulations. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me on the show.